scripture we're going to look at tonight is an interesting one. It teaches us uh, about salvation and uh, what salvation does. Not just what salvation is, it does give us some of that as well, but what salvation does. And we, we acknowledge as those that believe in Christ that salvation by the grace of God is the, is the most wonderful of things. Surely it is. It's the greatest blessing that we have in Christ. And, and the, the fact that I think that we're in Christ and saved from sin and its consequences by, by a holy and perfect and righteous God, this is the heart of the gospel. It's the, it's the thing that, that just moves us to adore God more and more and more day by day. But I think if we're not careful, when we begin to think about salvation and, and all that it is, and, and we're so grateful for it, we forget the accompanying realities of salvation. Salvation's not just a pretty little trinket that we get from God and we just put in our pocket and carry with us like a good luck charm that has no real impact on our lives. And if we're not careful, we can think we can we don't think that. We would never say that, but sometimes that's how we act. Well, we're saved and, and we just walk around and we're saved and that's all that that means. But salvation is so much more than that. It produces something in us. And in fact, according to this passage of scripture tonight, we're we're instructed by salvation. It teaches us something. It moves us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a different way. And so tonight I want to look at uh, look at and understand the fruit of salvation, the, the, obviously the origin of our salvation and the, the purpose of our salvation. So I'm going to look at this passage in Titus chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. Verse 11. There the Bible says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. As the Apostle Paul writes here to Titus, he tells him within the framework of, uh, of talking about the, the structure of a sound church and things about uh, the leadership of the church and all of those things, he speaks to him about the, the truths about salvation. And he begins by saying that the, for, the, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, that phrase there is one that if we're not careful, we can do some things that are uh, really bad with that phrase, to appear to all men. This doesn't mean that all men will be saved. There are those that want to take this passage or some like it and say, well, look, the Bible says that everybody's going to be saved. No, that's not what's being said there. It tells us simply that the work of Christ is there for all to see. Right? It wasn't a hidden thing. It's not an unknown thing that, that somehow we're in the dark and, and this has happened and we're, we're unaware of it and, and that God hid it from everybody. No, it's something that's known and it's being shared farther and farther and farther uh, with more and more and more people as the days go by. 
We're not grasping in the dark about salvation. Not only that, when the, the text here says that, that, the, that the, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it actually really can mean what he could be what he's saying here probably is that it has appeared to all kinds of men. It's there for all peoples. It's not something that was only for uh, the Jewish people in that time period. It's not only for this group of people or that group of people. It has appeared for all peoples. Jesus' work was publicly displayed and faithfully recorded. This is why it's foolishness. If you ever run across someone who wants to uh, argue and say, well, you know, Jesus Christ, the, he, Jesus the man, Jesus the Nazarene, he, he never even existed. Well, that's foolishness because even the most Bible-hating uh, historical scholar that ever lived would tell you that it's, there's unequivocal historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived. It's, it, the, the evidence exists in, in so many secular historians' writings that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man lived. Now, will those secular atheist historians say that he was God and all that he is and, and everything that he did? No. But it would be foolish for anyone to examine the historical record and arrive at the conclusion that, that there never was a man called Jesus of Nazareth. This is, a, this is historical fact, and as I would argue, the, the resurrection and other things are. But Jesus' work and who he was and and what he came to do, these aren't things that are hidden under under the veil of darkness. No, they were put on display. In fact, in the book of Colossians, Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says in chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16 that having disarmed principalities and powers, he, that is Jesus, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it. And some of your translations will actually say triumphing over them in the cross or on the cross. Right? The, to, to be crucified on a cross was a public display. Right? This, it, was, it was out there for all to see. That was its purpose. Crucifixion was public humiliation, making an example of people to strike fear into the hearts of those who would oppose the Roman government. And so this is is the picture here that Christ, the grace of God has appeared. It has come. Jesus has come. He has done these things. And and it is there for men and women and boys and girls to see. It's not a hidden thing. And he goes on in verse 12 to tell us that not only has this grace of God that brings salvation appeared, but this salvation, it teaches us something. It instructs us. I would say, in fact, the Apostle Paul writes here that there are fruits of salvation. That's what he says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In the recent past, there, even amongst so-called evangelicals, there's been a dispute about what some have called lordship salvation. Just to be as quick as I can about it, here's, the, here's the, the basic breakdown. There are those that would just say that, that salvation and, uh, and obedience are kind of separate things. That somebody, they, they can be saved and, and, and they may never seek to obey anything that Jesus has ever said, but as long as they said 
certain things and, and, and they were real sincere, then uh, even though they may not have lived at all in any way, shown any fruit of salvation, that, that, that they're still saved. And the, the side that agrees with lordship salvation says that's not what the Bible teaches, that in fact, that not only do we look to Jesus as Savior, but we recognize him as Lord and we are called to obey him. And if we if we refuse to obey him, then we are proving by our actions that we are not partakers of his salvation. And I would say that, that believing in lordship salvation is the biblical position. Uh, this, this verse standing on its own teaches us that. And, and we could go to a hundred different places. Jesus says, if, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, Right? But according to some who oppose the idea of lordship salvation, they would say that even to the point that, that repentance isn't necessary for salvation. It's just a, a, a mental assent. It's a mental agreement with uh, the, the proposition of the gospel. Yeah, I, I agree that, there was, that Jesus lived and died on a cross and rose from the I agree with those things, and so that makes me saved. Well, the Bible speaks much of repentance, right? That that's, that is the, the, the pathway through which we are, we are saved. We're, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're drawn unto repentance and forgiveness. We're forgiven through the mechanism of repentance. They would say that faith is simply that intellectual belief, not necessarily a transformation. They might also say that good works may or may not follow faith. Right? They might say, well, salvation and discipleship, they're separate. They're, they're not necessarily connected. And I would say that, that they, there is no way you can make a biblical case for that. One commentator said it this way. I like the way he said it. He said, I would submit that this verse, Titus 2.12, deals a death blow and puts an end once and for all to any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Now, no one thinks that we're going to live perfectly. I say no one pretty broadly. I would say most of us that are Christians, we would say, well, no one's going to be perfect. There are some people out there on the fringe that believe in this idea of being able to live in, in, in perfection. Again, I would say that that's a, uh, that would go against the teaching of Scripture. But we've got to recognize that Obedience is the fruit of true salvation. I think that's what the Apostle Paul's writing about here, that if the grace of God has come in bringing salvation to a person, then obedience is going to follow. And he begins to tell us what some of that looks like. He tells us that there are some things we're going to have to deny and some things we're going to pursue if our heart is right with God. He says, first of all, we need to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Self-denial is a principle, it's a, it's a foundational teaching of Christianity. We are not to indulge our every whim. We're not to indulge every desire of our flesh. Some would tell us in the world that self-denial is inherently a bad thing that we should always embrace and accept ourselves, and, and embrace and accept who we are and, and what we want and all of those things. And in fact, in certain 
certain veins of Christianity, that teaching goes on. The, and, and some of y'all may get mad at me about this. I don't know, maybe your favorite teacher, but I, I, think this is, this, I think this person's a false teacher. But Paula White said this one time, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. She said that. Anyone that tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. But here's the problem. She just said that Jesus was from Satan because Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Self-denial is part of what we have to do in order to live to the glory of God. Because if we, if we follow after, if I follow after all of my own desires, all my own uh, wants, and, and, and I'm going to end up in a terrible place. We see the fruits of that in our culture that you, know, you be you, and it's all about what you want, and who you are is just, is just great. And it's like, well, is who I am reflective of who God wants me to be? Because if it's not then I had better go another direction. I had better, because the, the truth of the gospel is that it is, it is transformative. It doesn't just encourage us to, to just be a better version of, of who we once were. No, it transforms us into a new creation that, sh, it, it, that people and creatures that should seek to live to the glory of God. And so we must deny some things. We deny worldliness. We deny uh, ungodliness. But we also have to pursue some things. He says he tells us what we should do. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. To live soberly is not just to live without, you know, being under the control of substances. I mean, I know that's the way we use that word, but it's to it's to live reverently. It's not to give our minds and our hearts and our lives over to the control, whether it be of a substance or some other type of idol, but to the recognition of who God is, to be serious about God, to live righteously. That's, we know what that means, to, to seek to live in the way that God commands according to His Word and to be godly in the present age. I think about the book of Ruth often when we sit around and we get in these conversations and conversations that need to be had and we get sit around and we think, how has it come to this? How is the world the way that it is? And I think of what Mordecai says, said to Ruth, and I'm paraphrasing here, but perhaps you were raised up for such a time as this. Uh, Tolkien wrote in The Lord of the Rings that, that it's not ours to decide what, what time we are given, but ours to, to, to do the best with with where we are, and again, I'm paraphrasing there, to, to live to the glory of God in the time and the place in which God has placed us. That is our call. In the present age, in this day, you are, I am, called to live soberly, righteously, and godly. That is no easy task, but that is the command of Scripture. That is, in fact, the proof or the fruit of true salvation by the grace of God. So we have the fruit of salvation in obedience. We also see, I think, in the next verse that we have the fruit of a future hope. It says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We have the fruit of a future hope. Those of us in this world who know Christ, those of us who have repented of our sins, believed in the gospel, we're part of the family of God, we can live in this world hopefully. Right? Not using the hope in the vernacular, which is, man, I really wish something would happen, but with a sure hope that Christ is coming. That we, we have that as, as an assurance we have that as a, as, a, as a promise from the God of heaven that Christ is coming. And because Christ is coming and because Christ has promised us these things, we can live, we can persevere, we can walk in this wicked world because we know that He is coming to correct all things. He is coming to cleanse all things. He is coming to call all of us home to be with Him. And on that day, all wrongs will be righted. Christ will stand victorious over the world. He already stands victorious, but there will be a point when that promise and that truth will be made complete physical reality in heaven and on earth. We have the fruit of future hope. Just as an aside, notice here, couldn't pass over this without mentioning it, how the Apostle Paul describes Christ here. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how he describes him there at the end of verse 13. He is our great God. Anyone that wants to claim the Bible doesn't teach that Christ is God would have to skip over this verse. Jesus Christ is God. He is God in the flesh. He is our God. He, we, he, it is He that we look to. It is He we hope for. It is He who we cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus. Yes, understanding the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God and three distinct persons, and, and all of the great mystery of the fullness of God, we can rightly say that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. And it is Him that we hope to see. It is Him that when the world gets darker and darker, we wonder when, not if, but we wonder when He shall come. As this text goes on, the Bible teaches us here, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and tells him, he's told us about the fruit of this salvation, but then he backs up, it would seem in some sense, and tells us how this great salvation came. How this grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. How did it happen and why? Well, it says that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. How did the, this grace of God that brings salvation appear? It appeared in Christ and in Him giving Himself for us. I told you when I began this message, there's so much packed in this book. Right here we have another just really important truth that's packed into this statement. And it's the idea of the, the truth about what we call substitutionary atonement, that it was Christ in our place, right? Christ gave himself for us. That's transactional language, right? It, it, it was us, it, it was us for him, him for us. He, he comes and he takes our place. He stands between us and the wrath of God. He stands 
as our great mediator. He stands as the one who has taken on the punishment of sin. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. It's not, it's not this, this foolishness that is abounding in so many places that, that Christ is just this great example of love because of how he lived. Is he a great example of love because of how he lived? Yes, he is. But he also was there as a substitute taking on the wrath of God for sin. Some wicked men have said that to believe that Jesus Christ absorbed the punishment for sin is to believe in cosmic child abuse. What a wicked thing to say. Christ on the cross simultaneously shows us the great love that God has for us and the great hatred that God has for sin. That the book of Isaiah would tell us that it pleased God to crush Him. In that great messianic prophecy, the Bible says it pleased God to crush Him. For God to pour out His wrath upon Jesus, it wasn't something He did reluctantly. He did it because it was an expression of His righteousness, His justice, and His love. Christ didn't just simply hang on the tree as a great example of love and sacrifice. No, He hung on the tree in your place and in mine if you are one who calls upon the name of Christ. Don't let anyone rob you of the beauty of the magnitude, the glory of all that Christ did on the cross. So how did the salvation appear? It appeared in Christ and Him giving Himself for us. But why did He do it? He tells us to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem us and to purify us. The Bible tells us that Jesus has died to save us Yes, from the punishment from sin, but also to, to, to redeem us from sin, but also to purify us so that we might live in this world to His glory. We're not just saved from the punishment of, of, of sins past, present, and future, but we're, we're redeemed in such a way and, and we're purified in such a way that we actually have the ability to live in obedience to His Word. Before we knew Christ... Before, before we had the righteousness of Christ in us, before we had the power of the Holy Spirit in us, our will was not free. Our will was chained to sin. We were predisposed to sin. We were sinners by nature and by birth. But because we've been redeemed, because we did, we, we've been purified, now we in fact have the capability that we did not have before. We have the capability to live to His glory to obey His Word. We couldn't do that rightly before we were saved. He has redeemed us, saved us, and purified us so that He might purchase for Himself a people. He purified for Himself His own special people. God saved a specific people. He, he called out a people, so that we might live to His glory. We are His people. We are His church. We belong to Him. We don't, I don't think we realize that in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, the way that we even sometimes come into the community of the fellowship. We don't, we don't really understand the, the gravity of the fact that we have been bought with a price. The price of the blood of Christ. We have been 
purchased. I don't belong to myself. You don't belong to yourself. You're not your own man. You're not your own woman. If you're here and you call upon the name of Christ, you are His. This is why the Apostle Paul consistently in the New Testament calls himself a slave of Christ. Some of our modern English translations, including the New King James, like to clean that up. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, the New King James says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word there has been cleaned up because we don't like the word slave, but that's what the word means. We are slaves of Christ. And a slave is only concerned with one thing, and that is to please his master. We are bought with a price, purchased. And we were purchased for a purpose. That we might be the special people of God, zealous for good works. He purchased a people and gave us a purpose. We're to be zealous for good works. That means we are to be excited about doing the things that God would have us to do. That our hearts should be, should be constantly seeking to please Him. I don't know we can't do that in perfection. I know sometimes it feels like drudgery to do the things you know God would have you to do. But there is also great, great joy in serving the Lord and it should be that there is more, uh, more often it's joy than it is drudgery. We all go through seasons. Don't, let me, don't, let, don't walk out of here feeling like I'm beating on you. If you've been struggling to connect with the Lord lately, prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling, your Bible feels like drudgery to get into it sometimes. I know sometimes those seasons happen. But I, I commend to you, persevere, because the, the, there is joy in knowing the Lord better. There is joy in serving Him. Christ has purchased us so that we might be zealous for good works, that we might be those who are seeking to obey Him, to glorify Him. Again, this is in, in the totality of this passage of Scripture, the principle remains that, that Paul is telling us, he's telling us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that salvation has fruit. And we... I, I feel like I would, I would be uh, guilty of spiritual malpractice if I didn't tell you to examine yourself in the mirror of God's Word. Because salvation should produce fruit. I would be, I would be guilty of spiritual malpractice if I didn't tell you that, that you don't need to comfort those that you know and love that have made some profession of faith way back in the day and they've never lived a second in a way that seeks to honor God. You don't comfort them with what is pretty clearly a false profession. You encourage them to look to the Word of God and to see whether or not they're in the faith. Don't let them be comforted with a, with a false profession. I'm not saying we need to go around trying to figure out, oh, are you a false believer? Are you a false believer? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is that, that if, if there's no fruit we need to be fruit examiners and we need to be bringing the gospel in front of those people. We need to remind them, hey, hey this is what you say you believe. Hey, this is, this is what it means to live to the glory of God. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect. Here's where I mess up. But guess what? I, I repent. 
We need to be repenting people, even towards someone who's outside of the faith. If we sin against somebody that's not a Christian, we need to, we need to repent before them so they can see what it is to live a repentant life to the glory of God. Friends, we can't be comforted with, in my upbringing, what we used to talk about Baptists, you know, like a few things. We like, we like uh, baptisms and budgets and butts in the pews, the three Bs. Baptisms, budgets, and butts in the pews. That's, what, that, that, that's the old saying, right? That's what Baptists like. I'm here to tell you that it's about the transformational power of the gospel to truly see people know Christ. That's what it's about. We've got to be willing to be uncomfortable to tell someone, hey, it's not just about what you say you are, it's about what you actually are. Not condemning them, but pointing them to the Word of God and saying, I, I'm, I'm concerned about you and I love you and I want you to make sure that you know that you are what you say you are. Because I would hate for you to be deceived all the way to judgment. Paul's encouraging us that salvation has fruit. And then he finishes this section by encouraging Titus to speak these things. That's what I'm encouraging you with tonight. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. These aren't just truths we should know. These are truths we should proclaim. We shouldn't be ashamed to tell people it's not enough to say you're something. It, you need to be that. It's not, it's, it's not enough to say that, to say that I'm a Christian. I, I, better, I better actually be what I say that I am. And I heard a guy preaching a message the other day, and I wish I could remember what he said because it was good talking about that. He basically said that if somebody kind of was like, I think he's using that example of an airplane. If you were in an airplane and somebody said, was having a heart attack, and somebody said, is there a doctor on the plane? Somebody's having a heart attack. And somebody like me who has a degree that's a doctorate but it's not a medical doctor said, well, yeah, I'm a doctor. Would you want me to help you if you were having a heart attack? No. That's the, no is the answer, okay? I don't know nothing about it, all right? If I was to stand up and say, yeah, okay, I mean, I guess technically I am. They say, you know what I meant. We, we need, we, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not, you know what we're asking. You know what we're saying. And he said, that's how some people treat their Christianity. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Was you got any you need proof of that? You need credentials that back that up? That you you actually are what you say you are? That you that that you're a part of this? That that you're that you're someone that's walking in the practice of this faith? Friends, we're to speak these things, proclaim them. He tells Titus not just to speak them, but speak them with all authority and to not let anyone despise you. Don't be ashamed of God's truth. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed to tell saved people to act like saved people. I'll tell you what my problem is, and I bet it's your problem too sometimes. Sometimes I get real worried about the fact that lost people don't act like saved people. I can't believe they'd act like that. Well, they're lost people. That's what lost people do. They need to be saved. I'm shocked that saved people act like lost people. That's what we should be shocked about. I should be shocked when I act like a lost person. 
You should be too. You should be shocked if I do, and I should be shocked if you do if you call upon the name of Christ. And all we do is sit around and, and fuss because lost people are acting like lost people. Don't be ashamed to tell saved people to act like saved people. And don't be afraid to tell people that refuse to live like Christians that they might not be what they say they are. I've told you this before and I tell you it till I'm blue in the face when opportunity arises. One of the key markers to true revival in a church, in a community, whatever it is, is when people who have claimed to be Christian come under the conviction that they're not what they said they were and they actually get right with God and that begins to happen. And we begin to see folks that we say, man, I thought that, that's somebody that I thought was this. And, and they were, wow. And, and, and that's one of the markers I've seen when revival has taken hold in, in small ways in certain places. It's when sometimes it's just God's people getting right. right? We're, we're truly Christians, but we're just getting right. But sometimes it's people that have said they were God's people and they weren't getting right and getting saved. I'm going to tell you something. We can talk about revival all we want to, but revival begins in the house of God. I'm not just talking about holding a meeting, having a preaching. I love that. I love, I love, I love that. But here's what I'm telling you. Revival begins in the house of God when God's people get serious about God's Word and they go about proclaiming God's Word with authority unashamedly and they begin to see other people get right with God. Then they begin to see lost people who've never even darkened the door of a church say, well, what about that? I see you're living the way you, you say you believe. And we have an impact on those around us. Let me challenge you. Examine yourself. I don't want you to go about doubting your salvation. That's not what this is about. But I want us all to be real with the Word of God. Be real with those that we love so that they might hear the truth again. And if they, if they know not Christ, that they'll turn to Him in repentance and faith and live with the fruits of true salvation that comes by the grace of God alone. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I ask that You use it. Use it in my life. Use it in the life of those here. Lord, would You just help us? Would You help us to speak Your truth? Would You help us to comfort one another with Your truth when we need it, but challenge each other with Your truth when we need it too? Lord, would you, would you convict the hearts of so many that we all know and love that call themselves Christians? And if they are, Lord, I pray you'd convict them and they would get right. But if they're not, Lord, I pray you would draw them unto true repentance and fruit of salvation. Lord, help us to live in righteousness and godliness in this present age. To your honor and glory in all things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.